0: Hi, everybody. Today, we dive headfirst into a new area of UCI that we have not looked at before, the School of Social Sciences with Dean Bill Maurer. The departments within the School of Social Sciences include anthropology, Chicano-Latino studies, cognitive sciences, economics, linguistics, logic and philosophy of science, political science, and sociology. Wow. Bill, how do you handle it all? It's a very diverse school. Can you please give us a a brief
1: adventure through the School of Social Sciences? Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, you called it a, a new adventure here for your radio program, but the School of Social Sciences goes right back to the very beginning of the founding of the campus. And initially, actually, it was founded without departments. It was founded with one giant faculty, completely interdisciplinary in nature, who devised programs for students and also research programs that, for the time, were unbelievably innovative. They were integrating early computers into their work at the very beginning. They were exploring statistical modeling for the social and behavioral sciences at the very beginning. And they were also piloting a lot of field work, field-based social research. So we've held on to that tradition, that tradition of innovation and interdisciplinary inquiry, but you, know, you just listed our, our um, eight departments. We also have one non-departmentalized program in international studies. We are a vast enterprise, and the School of Social Sciences right now at UC Irvine is the largest of the schools. In terms of students, we have about 6,000 majors. On any given day, more than a quarter of the classroom seats on this campus are for social science classes, and we graduate a little bit more than a quarter of all the students. It's a very big operation. We've got some extremely popular majors like economics, psychology, as well as political science um, are especially popular. Then we have others where really they're kind of shiny examples of the high level of excellence that the campus has achieved so logic and the philosophy of science is the top rated program of its kind in the country if not the world it regularly trades the number one two or three spot with other prestigious universities and you ask how do we manage it well (laughs) there are a lot of people here that help manage it like i said it's a, a big shop a big operation but one thing that we pride ourselves on here Is ensuring that for our students it has a kind of small college feel, um, a small town feel. So we have a lot of student activities and outreach activities to make sure the students don't get lost in the woodwork or don't feel like they're a number, but really are engaged with with the life of the campus and interacting more broadly with each other and with the rest of the university. Fantastic. Bill,
0: I happen to know a woman that works in the department here Carolyn Bramlett, who is involved with immigration policy and she does things like that. Can you
1: talk a little bit about her job and where that falls into social science? Sure, Carolyn manages one of our many research institutes and centers here. At this point, I've lost track of how many there are. There's 23 or 24 research centers and institutes here in social sciences, based here in social sciences. Some of them have cross-campus reach some of them are pretty much firmly within the school. And the one that she works for, the Center for Research on International Migration, really brings together faculty from around the campus who are experts in immigration, immigrant incorporation into the U.S., but also elsewhere, population dynamics and movements of people and how we understand global interconnection, which, you know, in spite of people wanting to build walls, is in fact more and more a significant part of the world we live in. That's just one area of excellence for us here. Another one that's also that also stretches across the campus, which we're very proud of, is our work in neuroimaging and neuroscience. And we just a few weeks ago had the grand opening of a brand new neuroimaging facility called Fiber, which lives in the basement of my building and brings together faculty from biological sciences, cognitive sciences here in the School of Social Science education, information and computer sciences, engineering, the School of Medicine, and elsewhere, both to advance the sciences of the brain um, through neuroimaging, but also to advance neuroimaging itself as a field, to sort of push the engineering and the physics so that we can get more sophisticated about how we look into the brain to understand human behavior and cognition. So you know, the thing about the School of Social Sciences is we're looking at humanity in all of its dimensions and at every level of scale from the neuron all the way up to large-scale flows of goods in international trade or large-scale movements of people in international migration, and everything in between. So it's really the kind of the vastness of the school just reflects the vastness of the human enterprise.
0: Wow. Fascinating. Bill, how about community
1: partnerships? Anything that the
0: school's involved in?
1: Sure. And we have a number of really, really nice partnerships with the broader community here in Irvine and in Orange County. In a couple of months, we will be co-sponsoring the Irvine Chamber of Commerce Business Outlook Breakfast. We've been doing that every year for the past couple of years. It's a really great forum for the business leaders in the community. We always bring out a member of our faculty or a couple of members of our faculty. This year, it'll be one of our economists who's an expert in housing and housing economics and he'll be paired up with the CEO of Zillow.com talking about kind of construction, and housing, and building, which of course is something very important here in Orange County. We also, speaking of housing, just completed the first ever study, comprehensive study of homelessness in Orange County. And uh, this was a report that was prepared by a couple of my sociology faculty with some sociology graduate students in collaboration with OC United Way, really looking at the cost of homelessness to city county services and to really think deeply about whether building affordable housing actually saves money in the long run as opposed to having to provide emergency services and so forth for people who are living on the street that was a fascinating report we have another one another report like that will be launching i think sometime later in november or early december and this is the first ever needs assessment of the very diverse Asian American communities of Orange County. And we've done this in collaboration with the national advocacy organization Asian Americans Advancing Justice. They've got an office here now in Orange County, a new office. And they serve Asian Americans from all backgrounds and of all kind of levels of need, and realize that there's something really unique here in Orange County with our very large Vietnamese community, with a significant Cambodian community, as well as communities of folks from South Asia and elsewhere that make this pretty different from other places with a large number of Asian Americans in the US. That diversity is ethnic and linguistic, but also economic, and there had never been any kind of study done on what kinds of services do folks need, what aren't they getting, what are they getting, and how can... The um, you know government and nonprofits and business serve them better, so that was a great collaboration also with the School of Humanities and the School of Social Ecology, together with us in social sciences. And as I said, the report's going to be released, I think, in late November, early December. So that's also been just a a great partnership. And finally, you know, we now host every year a Lunar New Year celebration for the Lunar New Year. The first year we did it, I didn't think anybody would come, but we had about a 1,000 people and a number of really great sponsors um, from the community. Last year, we had easily more than 2,000, maybe even 3,000, as well as really nice sponsorships from a lot of the asian restaurant chains in the area some of the local vendors on campus other community businesses and south coast plaza which was a really nice partnership and we'll be doing that again this year i think it's going to be i can't quite remember the, the date in february but that'll be coming up and that's another just great opportunity to kind of open up the university to the wider community and show off what we do here, but also have a great time.
0: Great. Bill, I, I see in your dossier that you are teaching law
1: or professor at law. How does that overlap happen? So um, I'm in the anthropology department and my training is actually pretty specifically in the anthropology of law as it relates to the economy. And a lot of the work that I do is in the anthropology of money and new forms of money, payment infrastructures and payment systems, things like the square payment system and how it changes people's behavior around money and their imagination of value. And, you know, in that context, there are really important legal questions and consumer protection questions that come up all the time. If you've ever had your credit card skimmed, you know that having no liability when that happens is a really important thing to have out there. So a lot of what I do has to do with the study of this intersection between law, economy, and people's everyday use of money and payment infrastructures. Gotcha.
0: In case you're joining us late today on UCI Conversations, we are visiting with Social Sciences Dean Bill Maurer. Bill's background is anthropology, and specifically in financial anthropology, he's one of the world's leading experts on money's artifacts and technological systems, from cowrie shells to credit cards. He's also the author of numerous books and articles, including most recently, how would you like to pay? How technology is changing the future of money? And also a very recent book called Paid. Bills, please. Talk
1: to us a little bit more about money. Is it here to stay? (laughs) So everyone always asks me those questions. And, you know, the the question really isn't about money. It's about cash, right? About cash and coin, physical banknotes and physical coins. Well, the first thing to think about is that the physical token of money is one of the oldest human inventions in continuous use. Like, it's hard to think of many that are older than that, although we've got, you know, fire and digging sticks and stuff like that. But money has been around for a while in physical even before coin, there were physical tokens of value that people used either in exchange or actually in ancient times more often as a kind of memory device, a way for you to remember that you had engaged in a transaction or you had established a debt relationship with somebody in the past. So a lot of the things that anthropologists call quote-unquote primitive money usually are more like primitive computers. They're kind of ways that people are kind of memorializing transactions and reminding themselves that these things have taken place for um, for future relationships. So that's the first part of the answer. The second part is that a lot of payment behavior, a lot of the ways that we deal with things of value, uh, really endure over time. These behaviors are hard to dislodge. and. Just one you know, very, very simple, almost silly example is the credit card swipe. Now, this is a behavior that probably will die as we switch more and more to chip and pin card readers and mobile payment solutions. But when you think about it, the card swipe existed for more than half of the 20th century, with people either actually swiping a card through a magnetic reader, or before that, putting a card into a swipey machine of the old knuckle busters that some people may remember out there um, in the audience that replicated that same exact gesture that people use to pay with a credit card. So the gestures of money, the, the kind of everyday behaviors around money are hard to dislodge.
0: When you talk about the muckle buster, is that where you actually placed your credit card and then they kind of Did that hard swipe?
1: Yeah, it's hard to do this in radio. We're making gestures (laughs) right now. (laughs) We're making gestures right now, replicating the knuckle buster, the old credit card imprinters where a card was stuck on a little tray with a piece of uh, carbon paper on it, and then there's a contraption that you would slide your hand holding onto this kind of handle to then make the imprint. Yes, that's that's what I'm talking about. And you know, it's great because uh, folks may remember a few years ago when P.F. Chang's was hacked, Um, when their credit card systems were hacked, they asked all of their restaurants to switch over to manual imprinters. Apparently they had some sitting around in some warehouse, brought them all out, And of course, none of their young staff had ever seen these things before and had no idea how to use them, which is just a wonderful, wonderful little story. So, you know, will cash and coin disappear? Getting back to your question, I think probably not. Even as we have increasingly digital forms of payment, still for many people, especially for poor people who don't have bank accounts, cash remains the, the one main way of... Affecting payment and is likely to keep on that role. You know, cash, my colleagues and I talk about cash being a really important public infrastructure. There's all kinds of private ways to pay MasterCard Visa. The public one, cash, is really important. It's free, it settles at par, so if I hand you a dollar, you get a dollar, you don't get 98 cents. It's irrevocable, once I give it to you, I can't kind of say, no, it's mine, give give it back to me. It has these real important functions and virtues, so I think it's probably here to stay. Mm.
0: Is it worldwide? Are there differences around the world, or is it, you know, every country by and large will
1: have a denomination that they recognize? It's a good question. So... I mean, specifically on the will cash survive question, let me take up that one. You know, right now in China, and I was just in China on a a trip on behalf of the university, and was able to see firsthand the incredible rapid uptake of a couple of mobile payment products, one offered by WeChat, the messaging platform and game company, the other by Alipay. And these are phone-based services that let you pay using your phone and your phone's camera. Basically, your camera is scanning a QR code at a merchant, and then um, a payment is being taken out of your account that way. It's phenomenal how quickly this has taken off in China. And in some urban settings, how much cash is disappearing from everyday transactions. Now, that was made possible because China has a very elaborate and mandatory identity system. So if you've got a mandatory, identity system at a state level, you know, at the level of your, your national government, then you can layer other services on top of that, in this case financial banking and payment services where you always know who the customer is, and so you have a way of tracking who's making what payment, are they authorized to do so, and so forth. But in this country, right, we don't have one standard digital identification system, and you know, in this country, we probably don't want one. We have a legacy of and laws around civil liberties, and it would be problematic probably for a lot of people to institute at a federal level some kind of digital ID token for every single person. Another case would be the Scandinavian countries, which are increasingly cashless. They also have digital identity systems which make that Easier to do, and you know, historically have been more homogeneous socially, economically. They don't have vast um, income inequality the way that we have here, and so I think that this stuff was kind of more comfortable for people. People aren't as concerned about possible threat of a government becoming authoritarian, say, and using identity data or payment data against them. So um, I think you know, a lot depends on national context, on regulation and on the kind of country that you live in.
0: Just a moment, Bill. I am chatting with Social Science Dean Bill Maurer. Bill, you are also the director of the Institute for Money, Technology, and Financial Inclusion, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.
1: Can you please tell us all about that? Sure, so we were established in 2008 to look at the phenomenon of digital payment and so-called mobile money, services that use mobile phones to help people save money or transfer money to one another, as well as to pay for things, and to to look at the impact of those technologies, specifically on poor people, in developing world countries. you know, to many folks, they may think, well, you know, why even have that be an area of research? Clearly, nothing must be going on in a country like Kenya or Zimbabwe. But in fact, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, a number of sub-Saharan African countries really are ground zero for innovation in mobile payment. A lot of this happened um, before the advent of the smartphone. It was before the iPhone happening on very basic feature phones, your old Nokia, basically, where telcos were allowing people to transfer small amounts of value via text message. And I can get into how they did that, but if if anyone's interested, you can look this up on on our website to see. But basically, a lot of governments and development organizations saw this happening and thought, you know, this might be a, a really fantastic way for people to get incorporated into the formal financial system which confers a whole bunch of benefits. It opens you up to new risks, but also confers some benefits. And so the Gates Foundation was interested in getting a kind of on-the-ground take on what was actually happening as new technologies of payment were um, being developed and were spreading around the world, particularly among the poor, and whether those were serving the goals of financial inclusion. So we set up shop, and basically we made small grants out of that Gates money to researchers around the world we found researchers based in those countries who were already embedded knew the language you know had kinship ties and and you know social ties and could really study the phenomenon from an insider's perspective and get what was really going on because often when you do a survey of people who use these services they're telling you what they think you want to hear, they're not necessarily telling you what's really going on. So since that time, we have funded over 180 researchers in more than 40 different countries all over the world. There's a whole body of work that we've produced, both academic literature, um, a number of books, hundreds of articles, but also policy reports, design reports for the industry, We've been heavily involved in advocacy around poor people's money and poor people's savings. And now we're actually at a kind of inflection point. Our, after, after 10 years of very generous funding from the Gates Foundation, that is now coming to an end. And so we're kind of pivoting, thinking about new research agendas and what we can do um, in this really interesting space around financial technology or fintech and financial inclusion, finan- financial justice, poverty alleviation, and so on. Did you say FinTech? FinTech, F-I-N-T-E-C-H, financial technology, yep. Gotcha. I know you have a conference coming up. Can you tell us about that? Well, sure. I mean, the conference actually comes right out of this work that we've been doing at the Institute and out of research on FinTech. One development that people are probably familiar with or have at least heard about in the technology and money world has to do with cryptocurrencies, things like Bitcoin. And we don't need to necessarily get into all that now, but it's been interesting to see how some of the underlying technology that made Bitcoin possible is now being deployed for entirely different purposes. And the workshop that we're hosting together with the Cybersecurity Policy Research Institute here at UC Irvine has to do with so-called blockchain technology, which is this underlying technology behind Bitcoin. Blockchain technology and logistics, particularly around various kinds of, of sort of critically important goods, like digital goods, right? Think about the software updates that you make on your phone, you know, probably two or three times a week. You trust that it's actually coming from the provider that it says it's coming from. You trust that it will work. There's actually a whole sort of supply chain story behind that code getting to your phone. This has implications for business, obviously, but also for cybersecurity. So we've actually got a nice core group of people here at UC Irvine who work on blockchain technology from a social science perspective, thinking about how it's had implications for supply chain management for doing things like traceability around um, fair trade coffee or ensuring that you've got fair labor practices in your supply chain. Again, the way that this works is a little involved, but essentially a blockchain gives you a verifiable way of tracking provenance of things. And that becomes important in software, it becomes important in art, it's important in the diamond trade. And so there are blockchain solutions that are trying to ensure that conflict diamonds are kept out of the diamond supply chain. And so this event is going to be on November 14th here at UC Irvine at the Center for Continuing Education. It is going to focus on blockchain and supply chain logistics for critical goods. We have a keynote coming in Tracy Frost from the Department of Defense, the US Department of Defense, who's involved in their management uh, sorry, in their manufacturing technology side and in their logistics and She's been looking at work in blockchain to help the military think about some of what it does. And then we have Paul Chang from IBM coming, and he's one of their thought leaders in blockchain technology. There are two keynotes. And we've also got a panel of folks representing various startups in this space who are going to talk about their work, as well as a panel of academics who are going to shed light on the, the research agenda and the scholarly perspective on this stuff. And of course, there'll be time for kind of networking and for people meeting each other and that sort of thing. So. Um, we're very excited about that. You can find information about it on our website, which is imtfi.uci.edu. That's the Institute for Money, Technology, and Financial Inclusion, imtfi.uci.edu. That'll get you there. It's also up on the social sciences webpage, which is just socsci uci.edu, and we're really looking forward to that event. It's gonna be a very diverse bunch of people representing a bunch of different scholarly and industry perspectives all together here at UCI.
0: Fantastic, Bill. Really looking forward to that and also future developments within the School of Social Science. How about as we close today, just on a personal side, what do you, when you're not you know, at school or traveling for school
1: business, what do you like to do? Well, if you look in my latest book, Paid, which is a fun book I did with a colleague Lana Swartz. The subtitle is Tales of Dongles, Checks, and Other Money Stuff, About the Material Artifacts of Payment. You will see in there a little picture of my dog Rufus. We dedicated this book to our two dogs. Cooper is her little chihuahua, and I have a hundred pound bloodhound Rufus. We. The dedication says something like, to Cooper and Rufus who have never had to pay for a thing. <laughs> and in my spare time, I enjoy the nearly impossible task of scent training said dog it's not that impossible it's just that he's a bloodhound if you know bloodhounds they are their own masters they are their own creatures so but scent training if anyone has a bloodhound is a great thing to do because it exhausts them and then they just want to flop around on your lap or on the couch and then they're done so
0: fantastic thanks for the insight bill hey we look forward to hearing more about the school of social science in the future and your endeavors You are loved here on campus, Bill. As I explore the different areas of UCI, people speak about you so passionately. People love working
1: for you, and they want to work for you, and keep up the great work. Hey, thanks very much. Nice to hear. UCI is a terrific place. Zot, zot, zot.